Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper for uh, January 18th? Yeah, I don't Tuesday, know. Tuesday. Yeah, there's, 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 we've had some technical issues, but we're on, on the beam this morning, so we're covering the previous week. Uh, and we're watching the snow outside, which uh, looks like it's coming down like crazy, but it, not really, right? It's this yeah, snow. It's shower. not really sticking. Yeah. Okay, but it is it is a real winter this year. Yeah. So far, where we live. So far, so good. So, um, yeah, I mean, so we had a very uh, busy week. We, uh, you know, we went into New York to see a play, as one used to do. Uh, yes. Not so much anymore. But yes. <laughs> we actually did. Uh, and it was one of those, uh, we went on a Saturday, so a Saturday matinee. Uh, there was no one on the roads. Uh, very few people got to the theater. The theater was full. But New York seemed a little deserted. It was eight degrees outside. That will do it. It was a little more than eight, but uh, it it felt eight. feels like it was probably minus twenty. Minus, it was it brutal. Was, it was, was brutal. brutal. And we went to see Kimberly Akimbo. Um, Kimberly Akimbo. So this was downtown. Yes. Small theater, small play. The Atlantic Theater Company. Right. Uh, yeah, something like 20th Street or so. Really small theater. Maybe it seats 100, maybe it seats 150. So, you know, normally really tough to get tickets when you have very successful production, but we did sneak in on the very last day. Kimberly Akimbo is, is sort of a surprise hit. Can I say that? I think I can. I don't know. Oh, I don't yeah. know what people's expectations were. Uh, yeah, I think it's a surprise it's a story, and uh, it's an odd, I mean, unusual play. You know, nobody's humming the... Uh, right. Singing along to the... Right. Um, no one's humming the scenery on the way out. But, uh, <laughs> no, but... No, look, it's a, it's a real off-Broadway uh, thing, right? It's an unusual story. It's a story of uh, a young person who has a disease that causes them to age at an accelerated rate. As they say in the play, four or five times the normal rate. So as this, this person reaches the age of 16, um, they're looking at an age of like 70 or 80 years old. And they, they appear to be. Right, they appear to be. And, and, and their body has... All the attributes of someone of that age. Right. Uh, but their mind is not exactly there. So their chi- this person is childlike uh, and has sort of an odd family and uh, navigates through the situation. Uh, not a terribly sad story, uh, goofy in a lot of ways, funny, and a musical. And it's yes. written, written by Janine Tesori. And? And uh, David Lindsay Abair. Uh, Janine Tesori, having done the music who also did the music to Carolina Change, which we saw the previous right. week. And also the uh, Lindsay Adair. Uh, this was based on a play he wrote. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, right. oh, it was yeah. based on a play he wrote, and uh, they made it into a musical. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, he's, a, he's a legitimate playwright. He wrote Rabbit Hole also, which was on Broadway a few years ago. And together, Tesori and Adair had uh, done Shrek. Uh-huh. Talk about a commercial yeah, he, property. He, he's done a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, but I will say, you were saying that um, the main character is just childlike yeah, uh, mentally, mm-hmm. and yet she's the most mature one in the family she's a mature when, child. when it comes right. down to well, it. Well, it's, it's an interesting back and forth. So the main, Kimberly Kimbo is played by Victoria Clark, and that's what I might call the raison d'etre for the musical. I mean, Victoria Clark is a star on Broadway. Uh, I don't think you get this made without Victoria Clark. I don't know that many people could do this part except for Victoria Clark. She's really quite wonderful in it. She manages to convey a sort of childlike perspective, even 
with a certain level of wisdom, which is what you suggest here. And of course, she sings wonderfully. So right. uh, she's key to the whole production. But the whole production, we said it's a small cast. Yeah. And most of the cast are teenagers. Right. You know, it's a very young cast and, uh, you know, a few family members. And uh, it, uh, but it works. It's very charming. It's charming. Yes. It's charming. It's somewhat poignant because, of course, uh, the she main is character facing, is yeah. reaching the end of uh, her life expectancy, yeah. actually, uh, for this disease. And, uh, and yet it's not... Um, it's not cloying. It's not cloying. It's not cloying. But on the other hand, you know, to be fair, it's a small musical. I mean, it, the, the, you know, it's certainly beyond a disease of the week type thing. But the, the kind of, you know, about her family was this kind of dysfunctional family, but in a, in a kind of sitcom-y kind of way. Uh, and uh, it's light. Uh, it's fun. Uh, right. what, what's interesting is that um, it's so successful that they're bringing it to Broadway, or so they say. And well, it, I'm yeah. spreading that rumor. Well, I've heard it too. I, I, I've heard it too. You, you, you sure you, you maybe you just heard it from me, no, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I, I read it, but I, I'm not sure where. But they've brought the Atlantic Theater Company has done this with other musicals. The band's visit started there. They brought the Broadway. Spring Awakening started there, and they brought the Broadway. And you could have said about both of those projects, so they're very different from this one, that uh, a lot of questions whether they could go to Broadway and attract an audience. And in both cases, they succeeded substantially. So uh, who's to say this can't? I mean, I think it's a little challenging. It's a small play with a young cast, which is very thin in some respects, but it's charming and the music's very nice, and we'll see. And if Victoria Speaking Qu- yes. of the cast, yeah. I just got to give a little shout-out for Bonnie Milligan, yeah. who plays uh, the bizarre aunt yeah. of the main character right and uh she's pretty funny yeah, she, she is, is pretty she's pretty funny. funny yeah she's probably she's the great funniest person in it uh yeah she's pretty wild um so in any event uh you know you wonder about broadway now you read another article every day about shows closing and it used to be just cast members getting sick and getting having difficulties finding other studies now they're saying they're having trouble attracting audiences so it's uh, it seems an odd time to talk about getting ready to open on Broadway. Uh, but but allegedly, yeah, Omicron is beginning to crest. Yeah, we'll see. So maybe things will come back. Yeah, if they do, I you know, I'm going to pay more attention to Atlantic Theater. Oh yeah, I would go to, back. Yeah, to, oh, it was yeah. a nice part of town. Yeah, Chelsea area. Yeah, you know, plenty of restaurants and yeah. uh, fun places. You're going to have a tougher time parking. The Be next a time. great. Place to wander around if it's you know above twenty degrees. Well, that, that that may happen also. All right, so that was the big adventure on Saturday. Yes, well, that's a big adventure. Uh, the other thing we've been watching, which we thought we'd mention, we, we've been watching on the small screen. On the small screen, uh, as PBS, as one likes to call it, around the world in eighty days, um, which is pretty old fashioned. I mean, it's uh, I think it's a, an eight episode series. It's based, of course, on Jules Verne's book. Um, David Tennant is the star, uh, playing Phineas Fogg, who takes a bet, uh, in the, I guess it's the late 1900s to go around the world in 80 days. And he has certain adventures. Uh, you know, it's not worth going into in great depth. It's not great theater. Uh, it's fun though. And it's fun. It's wonderful sets and uh, certainly invested in the production. And, uh, what do you think? Well, um, of course I was expecting around the world in 80 days and it's not that it's uh, kind of more 
action. You know, it's it's more serious. It's more isn't drama. It? There's it's more, more drama. Character oriented. And it's it's more, the characters it's have been modernized. Yeah. Um, and uh, the um, David Tennant who plays Phineas Fogg is a complex character. Yeah. He's you know he he's not uh, you know suave and debonair right. and solving problems without even thinking about them. He's struggling. And, and, well, yeah, uh, I mean, the last episode, you know, it's interesting. They introduced a character who apparently uh, is based on a woman uh, who was a real person uh, on that day, was considered highly controversial in the way she lived her life, uh, and played by Lindsay Duncan. Who yeah, she is, played um, Jane Digby. Jane Digby. I never heard of Jane Digby, but apparently everyone in the UK has. She had like, she had... A zillion husbands and a right? zillion affairs, but life. she ends up with this very long marriage to the sheik that you see in the movie. Well, there you go. And uh, long and seems happy. And that was she scandalous. She spoke a, a tremendous yeah. number of languages. Scandalous at the time. But it's well, and she was running around the Middle East. Yeah, and you know? yeah, well, and Lindsay, and, and she's quite effective in that character, Lindsay. Duncan. In the eighteen nineties, yeah, in look, the 1890s. it's well, they made that point. So it's, it's worth seeing. You know, you refer to the music. I had forgotten about the musical theme. That was the theme of the movie, which was made in the late fifties uh, with David Niven, and it's very easily dismissed, and probably rightfully so. Although I like to remind people, it did win Best Picture. So maybe things have changed a little bit over the last seventy years. Who knows? We're also back to watching Professor T. Yes. Well, what a great Professor the T. The Belgian version. Right. There may be other versions. They may be good. They may not be vision. But we stick with the original Belgian. It's about this uh, quirky professor of criminology. Well, he's more than quirky. He suffers from, from uh, you know, a, a, a mental disease, really. I mean, he, he suffers. He's, what do you want to call it? I mean... Well, he's got the compulsive... Obsessive behaviors. But he's, he's extreme. Right. He sees things. Uh, he, he hallucinates. He has yeah. hallucinations. Right. Uh, and he's not terribly likable. It's not like... No, he doesn't experience he emotions. Has, right. He has adherence. He has fans. Yes. Okay. But uh, so it's very complex. Very complex. It's very offbeat. Uh, At the moment, a, he's in jail. Still solving crimes. Right. He gets beat For up the police. You can imagine how he does Police are working with him. An obsessive, compulsive, uh, cleanliness above all things, and he's in jail. So uh, it, it's weird. He's suffering. He's suffering because of that. But There's anyway, no explanation we can give. Professor T. We can't make it sound appealing. It's not going to. But it is very good. As we said, there are other versions. Yes. Go for the Belgian. You're yes. going gonna to love the Flemish jokes. Yes. That's, that's right. I mean, we get so involved, we turn up the volume every once in a while, even though we're reading the subtitles. So it's uh, confusing. No. We we imagine in our own little pea brains that we now understand Flemish. Well, I understand Flemish. <laughs> I goes going going way back, you know. Mm. All right. So you were going to talk about um, this book about uh, your buddy Olmsted and this newcomer Richardson. Not really. A that's not what I have on my schedule. Oh, that's right. Oh, we'll get to that. No, we have something. Yeah, we have some. Yeah, you're startling. the guy who I'm, makes the schedule. I'm, there's a startling article here. All right, let's start. Yes, it is startling about Bambi, the original Bambi. Okay, so this is in the uh, review section of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, and it's a review of a book. Yeah, um, a new translation of Bambi. Right. Okay. Who knew Bambi, it was even a book? I mean, it doesn't even make sense that it's a book. I knew it was a book, yeah. but I never read the book. Right. Because, as you like to say, who wants to read a book about a deer? Right. You know? Who could write a book about a deer? Felix Salton is the author of the book. Right. And the the uh, the original Bambi. Okay, yeah. so you, we know that, all right? And the new this new translation is by Jack Z- Zipes. 
Z-I-P-E-S. Right. And um, the original book was published in 1923, all right? And uh, it was a German language sensation. And uh, probably we, none of us would ever know about it, except for the translation right. by... Well, the translation was by Whitaker Chambers, which is the weird... Here's step one. Well, it starts okay, step weird. one. Okay, so there... It's important. The translation is important. Yeah. Okay. Not, but even beyond that, what really becomes important is the Disney version right. based on that translation. Right. Okay. And we all, you know, we have our feelings about Bambi. Right. We we all know the story. We've seen the cartoon. Right. In my family, we used to listen to a uh, an LP with a narration by. Shirley Temple, mm-hmm. okay, of the story uh, that we that we all you know basically knew by heart, um, uh, and and we loved it. And you all and everybody says, oh yeah, Bambi was great, but of course uh, I cried when uh, the mother gets killed, or you know that was the bad part. All right, so but as it turns out, uh, the Disney version doesn't accurately reflect. The original story. Yeah, the Disney version is a Disney movie. And it's, you know, it's all about the characters in the forest. You like to go about, do your thumper imitation. Uh, and uh, they're all friendly in the forest. And uh, Bambi sort of grows up under these circumstances and, uh, you know, makes the best of the situation. It's all very colorful. Uh, it's, you know, the Disney palette. But um, according to this article uh, in the journal by a person named uh, Megan Cox Gerdon. Well, uh, let me let me tell you what, how um, Mr. Zipes yeah. describes Salton's novel. Salton's novel is a brilliant and profound story of how minority groups throughout the world have been brutally treated even when they try to live peacefully in their own environment. Read in the original language and its socio-historical context, Bambi is, if anything, dystopic, sobering, and sobering, for it reveals the cutthroat manner in which powerless people are hunted and persecuted for sport. Right. So it's supposed to be, apparently, according to this guy Zipes, uh, an allegory about people. And it was seriously enough regarded that way that it was banned in Nazi Germany where it was written uh, to begin with. Uh, who knew? Uh, and how do we get from here to there, or there to here, honestly? And let's go back to the translation. The translation's by Whitaker Chambers. For those old enough to remember, Whitaker Chambers was a notorious figure in the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, here's what his story was. He was a literary figure. Uh, he wrote and he translated uh, but he was, uh, what would they call him? A fellow traveler, a true believer, a communist uh, in the 20s and the 30s. Um, and he, uh, late 19, I guess 1938, he decided he wasn't uh, anymore in favor of communism. And he switched sides, as they like to say. And he became a double agent. He became a spy, a spy on the Soviets and a controversial figure when in the McCarthy era, certain people were accused of being communists. We all remember that. And they had all these hearings. And Whitaker Chambers famously testified against Alger Hiss. And that led to a very famous lawsuit in which Alger Hiss was accused of being a communist. And he denied it. Then it was Whitaker Chambers' uh, 
word against Alterhis and other evidence besides. Um, so how does this figure into Bambi? Well, according to this article, um, there's speculation that, again, when this translation is done, this is in the late 20s, by Chambers, he uh, is not interested in conveying the dangers associated with totalitarian regimes. Not at all, not at all. And, and, and Zipes makes the point that uh, he mistranslates, he omits phrases, um, and he does not convey Salton's profound personal and philosophical dilemma. Okay, And uh, Zipes also says that Whitaker Chambers who was soon to join Stalin's payroll, may have had an interest in altering Salton's work, not just to make a pleasing English-language family story, but also to mitigate its searing portrayal of the totalitarian oppression of the innocents. Right. How crazy is this? So they're saying here that for political reasons, uh, Whitaker Chambers does a somewhat of a mistranslation, a total softening of Bambi, so its real message is submerged. Then Disney gets a hand, his hands on it and eliminates it completely, but it's all a plot or something like it. I don't know what you'd call it. How weird is that? Bambi. Uh, and now Zipes is coming to the rescue and saying, let's translate it right and let's see what this story was really about. And it's about the oppression of people by totalitarian, excuse me, totalitarian governments. Well, you, when you think of the scenes of the hunters yeah. coming. Well, they care preparing the article to a pogrom. Uh, the hunters going through and all the uh, animals in the forest just fleeing. Screaming, screaming and screaming running. And running and, into, you know. That's what it's supposed to be about in yeah. the book. So it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. It's just mind-boggling. We'll just say for those who, you know, also remember Whitaker Chambers, Whitaker Chambers became a great ally of uh, Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon getting involved in the, the McCarthy-type issues and the red baiting and so on. So did use that uh, to vault into national prominence and, and the rest of this history there also. So Whitaker Chambers, you know, I, I know it's a long time ago and many people have forgotten his name, was a notorious figure. And how he figures in the middle of this is just a bizarre. He does not seem like a Bambi guy. No, no, no. All right, so... All right. Speaking of lawsuits. Yeah, speaking of lawsuits, that's your specialty. You know, I missed this article, but of course the um, legal stuff always catches your eye. And it turns out there was a ruling in a U.S. district district court for the Eastern District of Virginia Mm. uh, last week uh, about Guerre. Apparently, in the United States, Guerre is just another cheese. Yes. And anybody who wants to call their cheese Gruyere can do it. Now, well, that's the in Europe, that's the in outcome. Europe, slow down. It's like champagne. Slow, slow down. That's what? the outcome of the lawsuit. That was right. the issue in the lawsuit. Right. Because in Europe, it is like champagne. In Europe, it has to be from, you know, the champagne. It has region to be to from champagne. the Gruyere region. Right. The Gruyere region. Gruyere. The Gruyere. And so someone, uh, the controversy here was whether that was true also in the U.S. And the U.S., this court decided, no, not so. You can call anything Gruyere, even if it's from Wisconsin. Now, for those who are not familiar, Gruyere yeah. is a delicious cheese. Yeah. You know, it's it's... You know, uh, it's used in quiche, it's used in fondue, it's a firm cheese, it's like what we in America call Swiss cheese, but with more flavor. Right. And uh, I gotta say that uh, I use it. I use Gruyere. Now, how did this whole lawsuit come about? Well, um, this fellow, Philippe Bardet, or Bardet, 
is who's the director of Interprofession du Gruyère, was in the United States and happened to taste some cheese from Wisconsin that was called Gruyère. He said, it's not Gruyère. I can't say it's less quality, but you have another taste. And he said, for me, it's less taste. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then they're off to the races trying right. to... Uh, um, you know, slow down those Americans with their fake Gruyere. Mm. Now, let me say this. Yeah. I use Gruyere. Yeah. And I usually try to buy this brand Emmy. I don't even know if it's a good brand, but it is a European brand, okay? Mm. And it does have a good flavor to my way of thinking. may not be the best Gruyere, um, but uh, I make a point of getting that because I once actually did buy the Wisconsin Gruyere. Yeah. And uh, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing like Gruyere, right? So I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic. Um, but, uh, you know, we do have some exceptions to it. Roquefort in the U.S. is always is only called Roquefort if it's really Roquefort, from the Roquefort version. Uh, region. Region yes. uh, in France, etc. But, uh, you know, um, you can, it's hard for, uh, I don't know how you control this, any of this. Well, I, uh, if I, you're I, outside the European I, Union, I can tell you, but it's, it's not important. I mean, okay. it's it just you have to be uh, very vigilant in terms of guarding the trademark and stepping in as soon as anyone starts mislabeling something. What happened in the Gruyere case, I'm almost certain, is the cat was, you know, out of the bag. I mean, there was a lot of different flavors on the market, a lot of different cheeses on the market using Gruyere. And if you let it go that long, uh, then they're not going to protect the, the trade name. Right. But the thing is, the the... Consumer needs some protections as well. Uh, you think because listen, if you buy something and think this is what you're getting and this is what it's going to yeah. taste like, and you're probably paying yeah. for the Gruyere yeah, name, yeah. Yeah, right, okay, well, there's something to it. But anytime I'm, you buy a cheese, you're taking a chance. Anytime you, you know, you, you never know. It's it's not you, the kind of thing. Generally, when you, you buy real Parmesan, real Parmesan tastes different. Yeah. From, you know, Parmesan, Wisconsin Parmesan. Well, look, you got to know. It's like anything else. I mean, you, you get what you pay for, test. Well, you got to do your research. Yeah, apparently. okay. Maybe all right, so true. don't be fooled. All right. Yeah, but, uh, all right, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that the people in Wisconsin can... Continuing along with something make some with weird. legal implications. But don't, don't buy it. Yeah, everything's a legal story. You say, I pick up on the legal stuff. It's all legal stuff. But, you know, nobody writes about law as much as non-lawyers. I, Lawyers always just say, yeah, 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 yeah. Non-lawyers go crazy when they find a legal uh, aspect of it. They love it. So here we go. Here's an article on headlights. You might say, what does that have to do with anything? How could you find an interesting article on headlights? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, this is very interesting. It's called The Perfect Glow on the Road. The, it's by Eric Taub in the New York Times. He says he's driving along. He sees a car approaching him. Uh, with the is with his brights on, he has his brights on. But as the car approaches, as he describes it, the headlights of an approaching vehicle set my headlights in motion. The high beams angle down as the light continually shapeshifts, changing patterns to avoid illuminating the oncoming car. What's happening? What's happening is he's experiencing for the first time adaptive driving beam or ADB headlights. And what ADB headlights do is they do just that. 
they adjust so that they do, even though they're on high beam almost all the time, they do not go in the eyes of the oncoming driver. They react to whatever they see in a way that they change the shape so that they illuminate the road sufficiently, or even better than that, for the driver without interfering with the eyesight of the oncoming driver. It's a miracle. And he says it makes for a completely different driving experience. How is he able to do this? Is he in a rocket ship? Is he in a prototype vehicle? Well, no. We can mention yeah. that, I mean, if you have automatic well, brights, your lights will turn down. Yeah, but it's not, the, same, you, that's not the point. That's not, uh, your no, real no, problem is when people no, are not no, paying no, attention. No, 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 that's not the point at all. The point is he's saying that it doesn't turn down. It changes the shape so that you actually don't lose anything in terms of your own illumination going forward. You're just not blinding the oncoming driver. You're benefiting almost as if your brights are still on, even while you're not interfering with the driver coming on. So there's just all this light all around. It seems like a miracle, but it actually works. And how does he get this? Again, it's not a prototype. These are in cars in a faraway planet called Europe. Europe has this. Europe has had this. They do have ADB headlights. Not only do they have ADB headlights in cars in Europe, but in fact, there are cars made in Europe who come to the U.S. who have ADB headlights in them. And why is it that they do not work in the United States? Because it is, quote, against the law. All against the law. How is that possible? Well, there are certain standards that have been adopted and traditionally followed in the U.S., by the Society of excuse me, Automotive Engineers and the like, such that right now, ADB headlights aren't, haven't passed yet. They haven't been given the nod of approval, the imprimatur of the powers that be. The good housekeeping seal of approval. Right. So you, even though they're in these cars, they can't use them. Uh, does, are we getting them soon? It, the good news is we are. We are. Uh, there is... In the infrastructure bill, of all things, there's a provision that says they must be approved within two years. Manufacturers are going to be putting them in. And the cars that have them, and I'm talking about Audi, BMW, and Mercedes, they'll just have a little bit of a software adjustment activating them. Uh, and uh, within two years, we should see what, it, what is considered, as described here, the difference between night and day. A whole new journey, a whole new experience. It takes two whole night. years to sign this paperwork? No, no, it doesn't. But it will. Because <laughs> that's the I, way I still don't understand why we don't have it now. No, there's no reason in the world. Not, not in this article, at least. And there, I won't go into more details. There's more aspects of it. Uh, they talk about something called a, a, a bright light carpet that it lays out whenever you turn. You really can see it. It's supposed to be a whole new experience. It's within two years. Within. Not necessarily two years. Within two years. But it's amazing that you had to pass a trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill to get, you know, approval. It was part of That's the combination. That's weird. Yeah. It's that makes me weird. suspicious. Of what? Uh, you know, who, who's holding this back yeah, and well, why? Yes, yeah. Okay. All Look, right. I, I'm not going to argue against you. Yeah, this is something's not right. But uh, the good news is we'll get it. And, uh, you know, uh, what can I say? That's your government at work. But uh, you'll get it. You'll get it. And it's something to look forward to. I mean, it seems kind of amazing. It's changing the shape of the beams. And, in fact, it adapts. There are 37 shapes it might go to. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking headlights could be a lot better. Well, they're, they're They've been through be. some changes already. They're, they're going to be. You'll um, see. But there's... Seem a little weird. All right, uh, another book from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. 
review section, Americans and um, Architects, rather, yeah. of an American Landscape right. by Hugh Howard. Mm-hmm. So Hugh Howard uh, wanted to write a book about Henry Hobson Richardson, mm-hmm. um, American architect, yeah. and his editor. He wanted to uh, revive Richardson's reputation in uh, you know in the sort of story of American architecture. And the editor said, "Well, who's going to buy this book? Who's going to read this book if nobody knows about him?" Mm-hmm. Right. So he solved that problem. By not just writing about Richardson, but uh, writing about uh, Richardson and Frederick Law Olmsted, right. whom people know about. The and they, great, and, and, uh, but then they worked together. What, landscape what, architects. Yeah, they did work together. Right. And, then, uh, and certainly influenced each other right. in a variety of ways. Uh, so, uh, well, it's you know. like you were writing a book about Desi Arnaz. So said, no one's going to like this. I tell you what, we'll make it Lucy and Desi, and then people will buy it. But I, I still gather that most of the book is about Richardson. Oh, yeah. And that's it really you opens your eyes mm-hmm. about uh, his architecture. I guess one of his uh, most popular buildings is probably the, um, the Trinity Church in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, which is just a fantastic show of not only the you know, exterior with the kind of rusticated, heavy um, masonry, and uh, the good old arches and towers, uh, etc. But also inside, it's a jewel box of uh, decorative stained glass and mural works, uh, etc. So it's um, you know a, a fabulous number of artisans mm-hmm. worked to put that together. He's also famous for libraries railroad stations and uh, to some extent influenced how we um, build them, uh, how we think about them, how they work uh, even today. He was influenced by Olmsted, especially for um, the libraries and the railroad stations and in incorporating the landscape, the greenery uh, into the building. And then uh, he also had the um, residential architecture in uh, a, you know a nice sort of uh, you know what seems to me a little streamlined sort of uh, the shingle style uh, which uh, according to mr. Howard had uh, some interior design that was open concept mm-hmm. as opposed to all those little cute rooms in uh, your average uh, late 19th century house so it uh, looks like a um, fun book to read. I hope it has a lot of good pictures. Uh, and that's Architects of an American Landscape by Hugh Howard. Okay. All right. So um, there's an obituary this week, uh, a couple. The first one, the one that caught my eye, of course, was of Dan Riley, who was the original Mr. Met. The original Mr. Met. We all know Mr. Met. A big baseball head with a face on it. Well, in May 1964, uh, Mr. Riley was a young man and he was working, uh, you know, in a lower level position with the Mets. And someone said, hey, why don't you put on this paper mache head, uh, which will paint on uh, the stitches of a baseball, two eyes and a mouth. And and you can walk around and you'll be Mr. Met, which is what he did. And uh, according to this article, it was kind of an immediate hit. Kids ran up to him. He was just going to just... Prance, you know, walk around a little bit. He ended up doing a little dance. He couldn't help himself. You know, he was quite the attraction. 
Uh, and uh, this went on for a couple years or so, and for reasons which were just not explained, um, they retired this in 1967, and uh, maybe they thought it was too silly, and didn't pick it up again uh, for 12 years or so. Well, by then uh, it was retro. Uh, yeah, well, actually... I, <laughs> Right. Well, you know, actually, it's more than twelve years because it's it's a long story. They had a different uh, mascot and so on and so, but really didn't get revived until uh, uh, nineteen ninety seven, which is yeah. Weird. I think they were looking for retro. something retro. Uh, maybe, but maybe it wasn't paper mache anymore too. Maybe they put real money into it. But uh, then Mister Met became a fixture. But but the fact of the matter is that Dan Riley was the original Mister Met, and uh, what's nice about the obituary. Uh, that there's a tribute by the original Philly fanatic because these mascots stick together. And uh, Hank Raymond, uh, not Hank Raymond, Hank Raymond was the father, he was the football coach at Delaware, the son, Dave Raymond, was the original Philly fanatic. And there's a quote. He says, from Dan Riley until today, Mr. Met has been a symbol of the Mets who is really valued by the team and its fans. He reflects the passion, angst, keyword, affection and frustration Another key word of Mets fans. <laughs> so a little nod, a little tip of the cap, if you if you can say that, by the Philly fanatic. And I, as you know, I I know you're not going to know this, but I'll just mention it. Turns out Mr. Met was not the first. There was a uh, Baltimore Oriole version. Not the first mascot. Not, not the, the first, first mascot. baseball mascot. Right in the 1950s. There's Mr. Oriole, and you grew up in Maryland and were not aware of Mr. Oriole. I understand. Well, it's probably the early 50s, Daniel. I shouldn't have been aware. <laughs> okay. All right. You're not that old. Everybody loves a man in a paper mache hat. Yes. You, you and Zeke know that well. Yeah. Well, you made a paper mache hat of Jack Skellington at the Nightmare Before Christmas that both Zeke and I wore at different times. Uh, and the crowds Halloween. went wild. They did. I uh, made a lot of friends in that hat, as I assume that Zeke did also. It's a little uh, warm in there, but... Uh, I think Zeke, uh, as I recall, in the Halloween parade, yeah. Zeke took off the head yeah, he? and carried it around. <laughs> so, well, it's, it's so, still, he was know. delighted. He was delighted. Uh, the other Met news, since you asked, is that Keith Hernandez has been uh, uh, is going to be put into the Mets Hall of Fame. His his uh, his number is going to be retired. The Mets finally figured out that someone doesn't have to be in the real League Hall of Fame in order for the team to hold a ceremony, sell a few tickets, and retire the number. Other teams figured this out a long time ago. The Mets now are on to it. And uh, Keith Hernandez. You like Keith Hernandez. All right. And Keith... As a commentator, yeah, I have not a, met him personally. He's an interesting guy. Uh, well, they do mention here that he was skeptical when he first came to the Mets, but that he uh, spent a uh, winter uh, training, if you can believe it. I don't associate Keith Hernandez with training with his friend Gary Matthews, who was uh, a player um, in Philadelphia, he played for the Giants, too. And they used to run by the School Cool River, past Boathouse Row. It's uh, too bad he didn't do that later. We would have run into him. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he was the key in the, in the Mets' success in the, the 1986 uh, World Series victory. Uh, and there were all kinds of stories about him. I, well, I he wasn't happy to be on the Mets, was he? No, he was distraught. He was on a successful team, the Cardinals. Uh, and he was traded away in large part because he was involved in a drug scandal. He, he was a cocaine user. Uh, and uh, people used to frown on that kind of thing. So uh, he actually was called to testify in a criminal proceeding, and the Cardinals really wanted nothing to do with him. So they parted ways with him. They traded him to the Mets for what's called a bag of balls. 
And, uh, you know, his father said, stick with the Mets. That team's going to be successful. They got guys like Dwight Gooden coming up. And his father was right. So uh, there you go. So anyway, uh, good news for the Mets. Well, I think that um, one of the reasons is complex is in. He's a complex guy. You think so? Yes. I okay. think so. I think, I think uh, to go from, you know, um, drug scandal guy to... Wasn't he sort of a leader of the team? Yeah, he was the leader of the All team. All right, so I mean, he's com- and, and now he's uh, the all-knowing commentator. Yeah. He's complex. Now, wow. a couple of years ago, failure was in, yeah. mistakes were in. Right. Okay, and it was all about recovering. And uh, well, now I think falls. complexity is in. Well, and so we're we're willing to retire the number of the complex. People. I don't know. I, I, maybe maybe it's that simple, but it is it is. He was the leader as soon as he got there. And he was always... Uh, and it's a good it. reason for a party. Yeah. That's, <laughs> sell some tickets. Sure. Sell some tickets. Yeah. Okay. A very interesting obituary in the Times uh, Sunday was that of Maria Ewing. Uh, t- title says, Daring Opera Style with a Flair for the Dramatic. Dead at 71. So Maria Ewing turns out to be uh, interesting in... A lot of ways. She um, sang with the Metropolitan Opera. She was married to um, the great uh, theater. Um, what's the word? Theater guy? Peter Imp- Hall? Impresario. Impresario. Theater. Oh, that's a nice word. Yeah, theater and yeah. opera director. I mean, a huge theater figure. Um, and uh, she, um, she and her daughter, their daughter, uh, is Rebecca Hall. Right. Okay. Actress and director. And uh, so uh, she she was long divorced from Peter Hall. But anyway, uh, she had a dramatic career that included uh, some great singing, but also um, some interesting dancing. Right. In the part of Salome, she was known to actually do the dance of the Seven Veils or whatever it was uh, in the nude. In the nude. As, in the nude. As, as, it's, as I've always felt as an opera buff, it should be done. I mean, that's, that's the one that's, way to do it. I mean, it's, it. when you say do it in the nude, there are seven veils. You've got to take the seven veils off. But, you know, in the nude is the only way. If you way. take them off and you're still wearing clothes. Something's wrong. Yeah. It, it, loses, right. it loses everything. Um, uh, and she says it was her own idea to dance naked. So yes. it's a, um, And it was a brilliant idea. She grew up in Detroit. But here's the interesting thing. Yeah. Um, According to her daughter, who is an actor and director at this point, um, she would always allude to kind of a mixed race background for their family. All right. And. um, Yeah. Right. So. uh, So here's here's what's weird. I mean, Rebecca Hall's latest project. Uh, and it's gotten quite a bit of publicity, and it's, and it's an important piece of work. Is a film called Passing, which was presented at Sundance. Presented this at Sundance. Past year. Ruth Negay is a star. It's gotten you know a lot of praise, a lot of praise, and it is about it's, a woman. It's based on a book oh, written should, in the twenties. That's a good point. It is based on a book written in the twenties. Yeah, about uh, friendship uh, between two African American women and their relationship one of whom is passing for white. Right. They're both light-skinned, right. okay? One is married to a black doctor. The other is married to a white man who has no idea right. that uh, of her racial background, right. and he's a bigot. 
Right. And so it's the story of uh, they had been childhood friends and they get reacquainted and uh, it's the story of how their right. relationship develops. So Rebecca Hall is happens. behind this project and is the director of this film. Uh, and, and Largely because she was wondering about... Well, I don't it, know. It appealed, we can't no, say largely she, because. No, she said, she said... That's why she was That her in. mother's remarks... Yeah. You know, got her um, in gave her a curiosity All right. uh, about uh, this book, these issues, right. etc. So she so, goes on Henry Louis Louis Gates Finding Your Roots show you on know, PBS, which what you find where out. They're always having roots. celebrities finding right. out amazing things right. about their ancestral and she, background. And she says, My understanding is I have a grandfather, he was supposed to be a Native American, possibly American Indian, however you want to describe it. So what's the truth, and what does he hear from Gates? That her grandfather, and indeed, had been black. Had there was no American Indian um, blood in her, DNA yeah. right. uh, anywhere, but definitely uh, was black. And uh, and they're very interesting members of uh, his family, involving uh, a slave, involving a veteran, mm-hmm. a black veteran hmm. of the Revolutionary War, right. uh, etc. So it's quite an interesting story, so, and it's resulted in um, this interesting play. I think the play, not play, a movie, has gotten good reviews, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but, but, um, but, but of course now it comes full circle because Rebecca Hall finds that her mother, Maria Ewing, was passing, as you might say. Uh, and which doesn't... To some extent. I mean, she... she she wasn't publicizing, right? But she was, you know, telling yeah, her. Now, I, look, I'm not saying we we have know the details of what she told people or how people took it, but I, I, it seems pretty clear she was regarded as white. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, you're right. Rebecca Hall probably uh, experienced the book uh, in a different way than people. The thought resonated with her. Her mother had sort of indicated this was the situation, and then it was all confirmed. And now, of course, this woman, Maria Ewing, has now passed. Right. So and I have to say, it is a pretty good obituary because it does mention the new dancing. Yeah. It mentions the whole story with Rebecca Hall and Finding Your Roots. But it really does emphasize that she was quite beautiful and an excellent uh, singer, performer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, Maria Ewing, interesting story. So that's about all we've got. Yes. Today. Which is and, plenty. Yes, I think. Yeah. And uh, so uh, let's get back out there and shovel some snow. Yes, I think that's this what we'll have to do. This is Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you next week.